I think if people were just to do the three basic steps in every practice, to do the postures and do a little breathing, whichever way they want, and then to do some relaxation, they will start to feel a little deeper dimensions. So the relaxation is also important when we do yoga because in relaxation, whatever the energy was released through the practice is being assimilated deeply into our psychic centers, which we call chakras, as well as the organs of the body. So this way we provide some deeper foundation for healing. Naturally, that goes with the lifestyle. So it's obviously yoga cannot be the only medicine. We need to apply many other things. We often hear people wishing us a long, happy, and healthy life. But what if the length isn't what matters most? What if instead it's the breath, depth, and purpose of each day that matters most? Welcome to the Live the Width of Your Life podcast. My name is Annette Ardellian-Kuzma, and join me weekly as I interview guests who make changes in their own lives to live more fully with intention, gratitude, and joy. Be prepared to be inspired by their stories of how they shifted their mindset, took courageous action, and designed the life that they always wanted to live. Hey, welcome back. It's Annette. Today's guest is a really special person to me. His name is Prem Sadashivananda, and he's a scholar of Vedantic philosophy, Hindu scripture, and Sanskrit. He's a spiritual teacher, and he just has this knack of bringing yogic scriptures and texts to life in the modern world. He's a trained musician, and his spiritual talks and his chanting are just amazing. He also happens to be one of my spiritual teachers and is instrumental in my transformation journey, especially when I went through my own yoga teacher training a couple of years back. And we could have talked for hours and hours. We covered so many topics today about how he found yoga and how his curiosity about life and the question of death led him to yoga, how the mind has the capacity to both destroy and create, and why love is the foundation for any kind of growth and how we can cultivate more of it in our life, in our relationships. We also talked about how yoga is a fully integrated system and something that many of you, hopefully, if you're curious, decide to learn a little bit more about, and also changes that we should consider making in our education system to really allow our kids and the next generation to grow with more creativity and more mindfulness and so much more. I really hope you check out today's episode and let me know what you think. Take a listen. I am so excited to welcome today's guest, Prem Sadashivananda, dear friend, my yoga swami. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for joining Hello. me. It is so nice to have you on the show. Since I launched the podcast, I thought I need to reach out to Prem and when he is ready, he will hopefully join and here you are. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Aneta. Uh, yeah. known also by other name, Anapurna, for yeah. inviting me to this beautiful sharing. Of course. Well, so I wanted to share first how you and I met, which was, I think it was back in 2017. I'm trying to remember when I went through my yoga teacher training. Mm -hmm. And I knew that at the end of the yoga teacher training that we were going to have a special guest who was going to come in and do some teachings for us, lead us through some practices, lead us through satsang, and also do our name initiation. And so that was a while ago. And that's when we first met. But as soon as I met you, I felt like it was some sort of a soul recognition. Absolutely. In fact, that year, I was very excited to come to Cleveland. I think I had not been there before. But anyway, it was a wonderful weekend for me. To, it was an opportunity to share some of the teachings that I find exciting with the whole group. And they're also based on my book, which is called Empower Your Life. 
that was the reason actually I was invited uh, to just share these teachings. But somehow, of course, it happens like this. Yes. Tell me about how you select the names for people and then why you selected Annapurna for me. Wow, it's a good question. The way that these names are selected, it's kind of an intuitive process. Uh, you need to know the basics about the person, personality of the person and to know the spiritual qualities or spiritual potential. And believe it or not, it's very quickly intuited. And then the name somehow comes. I don't know where from, but it just kind of all of a sudden you hear it and it's there. And so the meaning of the Anna means food and Purna means filled with or one who honestly give food in all forms. I think there are many different types of foods like this kind of a podcast is a form of food too, right? It's a spiritual food. So I think that the idea of the food aspect is such that it means somebody who is incredibly giving and it's such an inherent part of the nature that whatever they do, they try to share it with others. So that is another part. One who finds fulfillment within, you can say it that way. Well, you honor me. That's so beautiful. <laughs> and your name Prem means love. Yes. In my experience, you are so full of love and you give your love so generously <laughs> to everybody. Can you share a little bit about your background? Because you alluded to the fact that you and I share historical roots. We were both from the former Yugoslavia, now Serbia. So that was an interesting connection for both of us. Tell us a little bit about how you came to really enter this life of love and yoga and Vedic tradition, and maybe a little bit more of the history of how that unfolded in your own life. I'll be very happy to share this with you. My interest in yoga really goes very far back in my life. I was very inquisitive about the nature of life, and I was very, I think, bothered by the question of death. For me, it was a mystical question that there was not really a clear answer. What happens? Why do we die? And so that thought of death also was one of the most most pressing in my quest. And the other thing, I did grow up in a, a little bit dysfunctional family and there were lots of problems and I was observing this as a kid and once my parents kind of got divorced, I was thinking, what is the purpose of life? What is the purpose of relationships? How can one keep relationships in a healthier way? So that all led me to the an inquiry that I was making as a child, like, what is mind? What is the mind? And I realized that one thing, if the mind has a capacity to destroy something, it certainly has a capacity to create something. And so I made this commitment, even at that age, I was only eight years old, I made a commitment that I will study my mind for the rest of my life. And of course, with all the challenges that each one of us goes through life. I pursued and I persisted with this and I'm still in that process. I just still want to know all the dimensions of the mind and everything. And I realized an important thing is that the love is the foundation of any kind of a growth and this is true for relationship is true for one's own self-growth and finding the ways how to cultivate that love how to cultivate that awareness that was my beginning and so at the age of 11 i got my first book on yoga and it was amazing i was trying to do these postures and it wasn't just the yoga with postures in it it was also philosophy that was part of it so i was so intrigued to know there was everything was explained in yoga there was nothing there was and answer it in, for my own, for my appetite or what I wanted to know. I think 
yoga provided all the answers that I needed to, and I just needed to get to that stage that I could have those experiences. And then I had some little gap. I wasn't really exactly doing all the yoga intensely until about maybe 17, 18 when I was 18 years old or something, then I went to my first yoga class. And there was a very interesting woman there called Yasmina Pulio, who was known to be the first great teacher of yoga in Belgrade. And I went to her. She was, at that time, she was over 70 years old. So I was part of the, her classes. And I was never really very flexible, but I did enjoy the postures and I could always think, oh my God, first class when you go to a yoga class, this is like an experience a lot of people share, right? Oh, I wish I did this before. This is amazing. We're all familiar with all aspects of our exercises and sports and everything, but there's something in yoga that kind of opened up a, a completely new channel. It was almost like a spiritual experience. I remember postures and then the breathing and then the relaxation. And then I said, I'm doing this for the rest of my life. That's how I was. Oh, I had the same reaction the first time I did yoga because I felt like for the first time, this integration with my mind, my body, my breath, my spirit, Mm. it was just this wholeness. And too often we compartmentalize ourselves into our thoughts or our body, or maybe we focus in a little bit on breath and it's just finished. But this was like the complete integration. And I felt so alive. And I, like you, I said, I need to do this all the time, but it's more than that. And so I know for me, when I signed up for yoga teacher training, I wanted to go deeper. So it was beyond the physical practice, which is sometimes what is most common in the West. So I learned so much about the philosophy and the history and the eight limbs. So for those that are just taking a physical yoga class, what would you want to share with them about what else yoga is, what it really embodies more fully? Mm-hmm. Well, I think yoga is, as you say, it's a, it's a holistic, it's an integral system. You can't really separate the body from the mind and from our true nature, which we identify as consciousness in our teachings. I would say that the people would naturally be drawn to explore some other aspects of yoga if they just began with physical because that sense of wellness that we have and the kind of a flow energy that we feel for the first time definitely has a connection with the mind. And there's a reason for it. We speak about the energy channels in our body, which are called nadis, and believe it or not, 70,000 of them. Some of them are the major ones, and they're all connected with major nervous plexuses and different functioning of the body on the physical level, but they also have their own relationship to the mind. So these energy channels are the carrier of both energy as well as the mental processes or thoughts. So yoga kind of works in a very mysterious ways. The reason it's mysterious is because it's not perceivable to our eyes or we cannot use the senses to explore these dimensions, right? But they're felt very clearly by us. We're just not able to define them. So what happens is that the yoga postures specifically stretch the body. And by stretching the body, we, in common language nowadays, we say we stretch the fascia. And in fascia, the embedded energy channels, uh, which are known to the Eastern countries and cultures. So when you stretch these energy channels, those 
impurities that are potentially there are being released. So as a result of it, there's a kind of effect on the mind that is done indirectly through the stretching and movement. And I don't know the name of the scientist, but there was a person who said that the brain is mostly lighted up when there's a spinal movement, when there's a movement of the body. So that kind of tells a little bit about the idea that when we do the postures, there's something happens also to our brains. Like a lot of, we could say, unused aspects of our brains are probably set to light a little bit and the neurological pathways are also fired up and built through the practices of breathing, which we call pranayama. And I think if people were just to do the three basic steps in every practice, to do the postures and do a little breathing, whichever way they want, and then to do some relaxation, they will start to feel a little deeper dimension. So the relaxation is also important when we do yoga because in relaxation, whatever the energy was released through the practice is being assimilated deeply into our psychic centers, which we call chakras, as well as the organs of the body. So this way we provide some deeper foundation for healing. Naturally, that goes with the lifestyle. So it's obviously yoga cannot be the only medicine. We need to apply many other things. But for me, that was the exploration that I kind of took on. And I did many sports and things like that. And I still think they're very precious. But when you actually practice yoga systematically steadily you really find that it will change your life there's no doubt about it and people will find you more peaceful regardless of whether you really try to be peaceful or not that's the power of yoga classes especially when you have a skillful teacher who is able to guide the students into that state of relaxation and a good stretch sometimes you can have a teacher who is more like concerned about his or her own presence and they want to like sound great and everything but If the interest in a teacher's eyes is the student, they can have a really very intimate, very beautiful experience of a yoga awakening, which I think this is what happens. So I think that's kind of one thing. And I would say also to the students of yoga that it would not be enough to just do yoga. Okay, we need to do other, other things. We need to take care of the diet, which your master of so you share your ideas with other people about that and also what where your expertise is going to life coaching and this is where we have like some missing links in our society the things that are missing in our educational system are really the things that actually kind of create immense problems in a modern existence so perhaps i would like to introduce two things that i feel like are important we're living in a very precarious times i think everybody's aware of it and there's a tipping point to everything and this is also an opportunity for people to affect a major transformation in their lives and i think this is simultaneously with all the problems that there are in the world there's a, a great awakening that is taking place in many people's hearts and minds. And I think the educational system is kind of defective because it doesn't study life. 
only studies it studies to make you become a citizen a good citizen make money and work but there's a price that everybody pays for it that in that system your own body may suffer your mind your relationships and you're not given the tools within that educational system how to even deal with them and so when a person has for the first time a heartbreak or they have some kind of a very challenging situation in their life they don't know what to do now you can say yes there are people like yourselves that provide help they guide people back to health but again we're talking about individuals taking those steps and we need to do this on a massive scale and maybe one day there will be such a system that all of those things that we are teaching to students and people and that we've been taught is will be as a part of educational system so i think for myself i have to say the most important thing is that self awareness is the key word it's the key word to growth and so my main principle is after i have studied so many of these things and the philosophical systems and practiced and everything i found that the self-empowerment is the key word you can wait for other people to help you you can find other people to help you but you need to do the work nobody can do for you nobody can dream your dreams nobody can stand on your head in the headstand in the yoga class so all these things we need to do ourselves we can get inspiration from every corner of this world we can get it from every book but the work that we have to do is ours once we realize that we start to lessen the dependence that we have on people around us on the circumstances in the world at work or wherever we are and we start to really kind of strengthen and foster our mind from within out rather than what people think we always think let first the world be improved and then i will do my things i'm not saying that people necessarily think that way out loud but there's an expectation that the government or the world or somebody will fix your problems and i came to a conclusion that really nobody can do this for you but yourself but you need to of course know the steps you need to be given the tools so that's that's the part that we have to do as educators i find actually when you're a yoga teacher or life coach i find that those things part of the education it's on they were part of the traditional education for example the circumstances of india or china or tibet or any of these countries that had a very rich spiritual culture you realize that you could never separate the spiritual practices from the way of life and for example the pharmacy of that time and the cooking there was all one unit somehow in the west we separated everything i think the self empowerment is the key to creating a better life my guru used to say something like this if you want to change the society you have to think in this way imagine if you have a piece of cloth that is made of cotton and you want to change it into a silken cotton how would you do it so he answered he says one thread at a time so whether you're talking about yourself as an individual you're talking about the society you can only change one thread at a time one action at a time so everything like this and you're building the momentum that's important because even though you can do one action here and there you need to actually sustain the momentum in order to activate something and create a change for the better and i think this is what's we're forced to move in this direction it doesn't allow for any free time you can't really nurture yourself you can't nurture your family you're scrambling you're running around here and there needless to say the tech, technologies 
added more pressures and it will be continuously be adding the pressures because the dependence on technology arises in contrast to the separation from nature. The further we go away from nature, the more we have dependence on technology. In fact, the technology is a mirror in a way. It shows what can the mind do when it's in a heightened states, right? But I think there are a lot of temptations within the technological systems that are making people more addictive and it's becoming harder to actually implement the spiritual principles or the love principles or growth principles in life. So all of that has, there are steps to everything, but I think once we are kind of awakened to the fact we must change our lives, we must make some efforts to move in a direction of more harmony, more integrity. That's really what yoga is about. If I would translate the word yoga in a modern way, I would call it the integrity. I wouldn't call it the union only, which is what it normally means. Because to unite something, even in a relative sense, you need to integrate them in a sense that the parts become compatible to one another. Yeah. And when people say to me that they feel out of balance, I always say it's because you're not in integrity with yourself. You're making daily choices that don't align to the values that you said are most important to you. And you've shared so much, but I wanted to talk about just the kids right now. And you talk about the education system. We don't necessarily cover the things that are important life lessons. And there's so much focus, of course, on academics and subjects. But the other thing I noticed with this young generation, which actually breaks my heart, and I think we're going to see the ramifications, is we are seeing anxiety and panic attacks and stress in children younger and younger. We're also seeing these schedules where these kids from the youngest of age, from morning, they wake up super early to go to school. And then throughout the whole day, they're at school. And then they've got all of these sporting events until evening, and then all the homework. And then on the weekends traveling all over the place. So it's the kids and their parents who are never resting. There's never any stillness. There's never any quiet. And when there is, the feeling is so unfamiliar. So something like rest, which is so natural, and we need it to restore and to renew our energy and to return back to ourselves is so foreign in today's society for so many people. So What can you tell me about the need for rest or the stillness and why so many people struggle with it being very uncomfortable for them? Oh, this is a very profound question. In fact, it's, you've already kind of answered it a little bit. I feel this is probably one of the most crucial things to be discussed by as many people as possible because you have individual choices, but you also have the pressures that are piled up on you. But the paradigm of this world as it is, which what makes life so challenging is the materialistic view of it. The materialistic view of of life is based on desire systems. So everything is like you fulfill this desire, you fulfill that desire. In order to do that, you need to make enough money. So everything has become like this. And the paradigm is like when you're a young person, you get to a certain age, you, you should get your job, you should marry, and this is all fine. But then what happens often happens is that the two people who got together all of a sudden end up in a high stress uh, life, living a life high stress in the sense that they have to work for many, many hours. And uh, all of a sudden the child is born and now it's scramble. How do we take care of the kid and how do we still make the money 
to pay the mortgage, to get this and that going. So the part of them itself, I never really agreed with that. And that's probably why I was kind of a little bit out of the box. I was born out of the box because I had to challenge some paradigm that is part of the life and I don't really agree with. For example, I believe that people should have enough time to be with their children and they should have enough time to self-nurture themselves. I know that there are pressures that are just there. Like you can't really necessarily nullify them. But the one thing that I always think, if you want to move in a direction of more quality versus quantity, then you need to make some sacrifices in life. And that will mean at this point of our time will mean that we need to perhaps reduce something in order to gain somewhere. Because every reduction in one place creates an opening in some other places. So this is a yin-yang philosophy. So that's what, that sacrifice needs to happen. And now this is the problem because the technology is bringing an extraordinary number of hours into your busy life. And the, the problem is that it creates this illusion that you can do that from home, right? So I think people's boundaries with life have changed because of the materialistic view. It's the, the boundaries meaning if I work from home, right? But I'm also cooking here and eating, I feel like I'm benefited by the fact that I can just go to the kitchen of something quickly done, which is good. And I should be grateful for it. But ultimately, you lose some boundary between living in the home and actually working in the home. So your home, which used to be primarily your own space for doing your own things, has become your working space. So the boundaries have been lost in modern lives between what are my working hours, what are my free hours. There are no free hours, really, for majority of people, maybe Sunday a little bit, at least here in Manhattan. And then you have the boundaries lost between the night and the day. So people trying to extend the day into the night to either do something they really enjoy doing or they're trying to accomplish things that could not accomplish during the day. And that stretches, then the boundary of a time gets stretched into the weekend. And then this country, we don't have holidays that are lengthy. We only have two weeks at best, right? So we could borrow a European kind of a little bit idea and have at least four weeks. All of that is going to actually gradually, hopefully evolve. I feel very sorry for kids today that they're, first of all, they're kind of immediately pushed to go and to study and learn at a very young age. I think the child should have a first five, six, seven years of just pure playing. This is my philosophy that's kind of in alignment with the Eastern philosophy. They should be learning, but their play should be a major part of their life. And we grew up climbing trees and spending time in forests and everything, at least to some degree. And I remember that that was my day. Like I would just go and play and then it would be obviously very challenging for a Mediterranean mother to bring you back home. But this this was done like that. And I really felt that there was a big part of who I am even today, just having that freedom. Children should first examine and learn from life itself, not from machines. They should go and should study, look at the cow and look at this animal, look at the tree. That should be their kind of a thing. So they should understand that the sun and the moon and the plants are living beings. They're not just some kind of things there. And if they have that exposure, they're going to have a greater balance in relation to everything else in life. 
See, one thing that I teach about today is that we have a word which is called dharma, which really means integration, sustainability, but also it discusses the connections. So when you look at your own body, in your body, there are trillions of cells that do not act independently, right? So they're acting for the benefit of the whole system. None of the cells think, I wish I was like a brain cell. I could do a much more sophisticated work. So the most important principle of the Dharma is that there's a division of work. So what happens is that the blood cells do one job but they cannot do the job of nervous cells, right? And so what you're finding today, where you have a greater degree of disintegration in a society which is so divided in so many ways, of families are divided. So you have the cells, like the children, living one thing, then you have parents living something else. In fact, it's a very rare to find a family that has all of these members still around, right? Usually grandparents are somewhere else and all that. So what I think the child should be brought up by a few people like that and in company with other kids, like which is typically what obviously people try to do their best. But what happens is today is that the pressures are so high, the pressures on a child are very high. Uh, every child has to perform. So the whole idea of a success in life needs to be redefined. If you're going to have a, su a success in life, which means the failure in other things, that's not success. So you need to look at it in a, some more spiritual definition of what su success means. So I think for a child to be successful, it means to really be just brought up with some love and some care. So... It's, it's interesting because a couple of things came to mind. One, definitely the things you talked about are some of the lessons from the blue zones, the places in the world where people live the longest uh, yes. over the age of 100 and they are integrated families and they are extended families. And there's the benefit to the children. There's the benefit with the division of labor and work, which is something it's very challenging in modern society, but it, there's the benefits to the elders in the family who are not on their own, who actually mm -hmm. delight in the grandchildren because they keep them young and keep them active. And, and everyone has a strong sense of purpose with their roles within the family. But Prem, we know that in modern society, not just in the United States, but in so many places in the world, mm -hmm. it's a privilege and it's a luxury to be able to live with your family, to have them nearby, to have them alive. And there's so many families that are single parent families who are just trying to get by, who are just trying to do what mm -hmm. they can, working multiple jobs to survive. And so these things don't necessarily work for them. What would you say to people who say, yes, it would be great if we could all live this way, but it's not my reality. It's something that's very challenging. How could they still create that sense of community or redefine success within their own terms that maybe can't look like what you talked about earlier? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm inspired by your questions. What I feel like in life, you have two things. You have ideals and then you have what's called a real life. Yeah. And I think we need to set up the ideas, even though they're not completely achievable in many yeah. ways, because it is the ideas that set the transformative process within us. So if we have something that we look forward to and we want to attain it, or we want to be that, then we're initiating some transformation and that takes deeply within us with our values. And we start to cultivate the virtues 
and all of that. So I think this is important to set up some ideals personally for each one of us and to set up the, some ideals for the family. Yeah. I know the reality of what we are experiencing in the world now is in a great contradiction to what we are saying in the spiritual world, right? So I think you have to start small. The one thing that to cultivate the relationships is to really concentrate on increasing your own sensitivity to the presence of other person in your life and to simply try to bring in more awareness and kindness into simply working with other members of the family. And if we can, for those 10 minutes that we have, if we can put all our heart into somebody's presence and what they need and who they are and their joys and their sadnesses and whatever it is, then will all that expand our experience of love. I agree. I think it definitely starts with ourselves. And as I was hearing you talk about just being loving and kind and present, with other people. Mm. It just made me think about this notion of how in the world I see people feeling so separate and there's such polarizing points of view. And instead of focusing in on maybe commonality, similarities, points of agreement, however small they be, if we did that first, you can build from there. But if you start here where the division is so big on something that's the most polarizing, people stop there and they cut off relationships with family, with friends, with people who think differently, with neighbors. And instead of starting on what makes us all human and how we're all connected, because we're not separate. I think that this notion of separateness is what it starts with the problem. If we acknowledge that we're not separate and the way we treat ourselves the way we treat our family, the way we treat our community, and it expands bigger and bigger is kind of a reflection of what we're seeing in the world today. So how do you think that we can start to cultivate some of those simple conversations, ones that are more loving, that are more kind, they're more compassionate, so that we can create this sense of understanding and community and build something stronger. I mean, it has to start with us, right? Like there's no way that we're fixing something so massive unless we start with ourselves first. Your questions are absolutely brilliant. I really am inspired by them. Well, for one, I want to say that massive fixing of anything is not going to take place on any level for anything. So we need to learn to live our lives in a smaller chunks of time and space and also action. I think that's the first thing. So one thing you have to remember, one of the faults of the educational system is that it doesn't encourage the development of the heart, meaning that the heart qualities such as kindness and everything. So that cannot be done by regular educational system. It can be done, but it's usually supplied by what we call a spiritual education, which needs to obviously coexist and has its own importance under the sky. So I think Amao, somebody said beautifully, says if a person is purely intellectual, scientific in their outlook, they will barely be compassionate. So this is what you find in modern times. There's too much emphasis on intellect, too much emphasis on reasoning. When you look at, for example, a tree or you look at the cloud, you can analyze it scientifically nicely, but you will never know the tree, right? So the thing is that you can do the same with food and you can also do it with people. You can analyze people. This is what people do. This guy's smart. This one is not smart. So what does it mean? You just label the person and then you basically shut any possibility of knowing the person deeply. The only solution to this overuse 
purpose of the intellect is the true training of the heart qualities. And that, that will definitely mean kindness and love and having mercy also. I love this word. It was used only at the time of Jesus or something. I think people don't have mercy. When we see that somebody suffers, we should be able to identify with that suffering to some degree at least. And today you have a world which is so strange, filled with hungry people, sad people, lonely people, homeless people, any kinds of people. And we see that barely anyone with a heart will stop and look at them or to help them. So I think this is the first thing. I, the principle that I like to encourage is here. The first thing to do when you want to connect with somebody, even if that person is not easy, you kind of can handle, like your family, hopefully members are there, that you can, you have relatively, I say relatively, nobody has absolutely good or perfect relationships with others, but just try to recognize their presence. Now, everybody wants to be noticed for their presence. For example, when you come home from work, the first thing should be the recognition of the presence of the other person. We don't throw our problems at the person. We don't immediately complain about our day. We don't immediately get to our phone and computer and we check our messages and everything. First, we say, how was your day? I'm so excited to see you. You were in my heart today. Even like that. I agree with you, Prem. I started actually, every time we go to a restaurant, Sometimes the waiters and waitresses, they don't even introduce themselves because they're busy, they're coming, they feel rushed, so they want to take your order. And I always say, tell me again, what is your name? And whether they uh, did or didn't. And then I choose to repeat their name every time they come back. Thank you so much for that water, Pram. Thank you so much for this. And it, it's amazing what happens when you said you make that small connection using someone's name, making the connection with the eyes. It's such a huge difference. Or just asking someone, hey, how was your day? How are you? It, it sort of jolts them out of whatever they were doing. Because sometimes people are in their mind. They might have worries. They feel their body is physically in one place, but their mind is somewhere else. And so it brings you back to the present. No time traveling, as I like to say. <laughs> so that's something that I've noticed is very helpful. So I love this idea of the connection and just returning to that. And so... One of the things you talk about in your book so lovingly, and you started off with this in our podcast, was the notion of our thoughts and the world that we create with our thoughts. And I know that in yoga, we studied something, a concept called Maya, and which was very fascinating. So can you explain the concept of Maya and how you see that apply in our modern day? society. I will. Yeah. May I just take you back for like a couple of minutes which you were just saying about calling somebody by their name? Yes. That's so beautiful. I just wanted to say this before I continue with this. There's a book called Bearing Witness by Bernie Glassman, I think. And in that book, there's an example. He was a Buddhist man, but he will organize the retreats for those people who wanted to experience a homeless life. For a week. And that person will pay some money to be on the street for seven days. They will be in a safe environment. It would not be, not like modern homelessness is a little yeah. bit too much, but a little bit like that just to see what it feels like. And so there was a, a lawyer who kind of wanted to see what it is like. And of course, for seven days, you don't shave, you don't take a bath, you basically eat whatever you can find. And he said it was the toughest time in his life. And the hardest thing, because he used to say always, 
I look quite smart when I'm going for my work. I'm well-dressed and everything. And sometimes people look at me for that reason only. And then it says here, what I found the most challenging is that having become homeless for one week, nobody even looked at me. And needless to say, nobody looked at my eyes. Nobody cared who the person was, where they came from, and all of that. So that's part of the story. Second part of the story, even more interesting, this gentleman who wrote the book, he had a wife and he, and so they would visit different homeless people, and especially women, and they would give them a dollar each and ask them how they were. But at some point, his wife asked one of the ladies, he says, what is your name? And she said she was silent. And then after being asked a couple more times what her name was, she was so emotional about this that she burst into tears. And she said, I have been on the streets for over 10 years, nobody asked me for my name. It's amazing, right? So asking somebody for the name makes them extraordinarily special. And you want people to feel special. I'm talking about just cultivating these little sparks of love between the relationships that we, that we can handle, the people that are very close to us, even if they may not always respond in the beginning, they may not appreciate our efforts or whatever it is, we have to keep on trying. Now we come to the domain of something very interesting. So you said we have thoughts and we are Maya, right? So what is the Maya? Oh, that's a big story, but I will try to say it in a few words. We talk about the supreme reality in yoga as being within all of us, which is, we call it a divine self or supreme self. You can call it God if you wish, or you can call it consciousness, depending on your preference. You can call it any name you want. That is the thing that is we are all part of. In fact, there's only one reality and that is that reality imparts that sense of commonality in each one of us so when you feel for somebody you feel some common element in both people right so going back to the idea of cultivation of kindness and everything what you're really looking for is you're looking for a common element between yourself in in yourself in that other person and you will find that there is the same thing there's life in that person there's life in me there's a desire to be happy in that person there's a desire to be happy in me and there is simply that consciousness we speak about. Now, within that consciousness, this consciousness is, of course, a large subject, but there's a creative power, and that creative power is called Maya. So that Maya is the reason why there's this creation. And so we can say also that the Maya is the reason why each one of us has our own creation, like our creation of our thoughts. It's like it's each one of us lives in, in our own world, in the world of our own thoughts, so to say. But this is an amazing thing. Basically, Maya is the reason why we were born and the reason why we feel also caught in this existence. And often we feel that we are not in control of our lives. And Maya also manifests in a form of different desires and temptations. So that's another kind of a view of Maya. So the, the purpose of spiritual life is to overcome that cosmic delusion or cosmic power. And that is the, the way we do it. We work with a smaller kind of manifestation of that illusion, which is rather large, but it's smaller in comparison. It's our own mind. So you have to learn how your mind, how your self-talk, how your imagination works and how it creates issues that should not be there 
because we are in the world of creation, so we can create whatever we want. And that is the part of Maya, you can say, in a positive way. Even spirituality and everything like this could be considered to be Maya. But within the Maya, there's something which is binding and there is something that is kind of non-binding. So the spiritual approach to life is the part of the Maya which you need to work with, meaning you have to reawaken to your potential. You can create anything you want if you just apply yourself, make an effort, know what you're doing, get familiar with the techniques of how you can change your life, and it will be a work in progress. So we don't need to wait for perfection of any kind. We don't need to be perfect at any moment, but we do our best. To overcome the Maya, you can only do it in this way. If you have a traditional explanation is like this. If you have a thorn in your finger, you want to get rid of it. You have no other means. You take another thorn and you take it out and then you throw both of them out. So the thorn is the ignorance. The spiritual practices are another thorn. And then when you dig that out, there will be nothing left. You'll be enlightened. An enlightened person doesn't need to do spiritual practices, doesn't need to think positively. He or she has already attained that. I love that. That's so beautiful. I'd never heard the one about the two thorns. So what are your spiritual practices? And what would you advise maybe someone who's curious things that they could do right now to start working on their own Maya and overcoming it or things they could do to start to build more discipline or spiritual practice in their own life? First of all, I think people should definitely talk to you a little bit because what I really appreciate about you, you have a very wonderful way of kind of summarizing. I begin my day by I have to say, following some medical medium procedure, I make my little lemon water and celery juice, and then I'm ready. Usually, I start by doing first up because I find that that is the easiest thing to begin with. So I do about 10 minutes or so pranayama. Some breathing exercise, you can easily do it. It's alternate nostril breathing. It may appear that it doesn't really cause great change, but you can immediately feel it. After about 10 minutes, you can feel it. Maybe that could be one way to kind of harmonize. See, for me, as an advice for everybody, you want to have, first of all, some time taken for your own practices every day. If you just walk into this life of intensity and activity without any preparation, spiritual preparation, you'll find yourself like going right into the ocean with the huge waves. They're going to take you in. You're going to get lost. This is what happens to a lot of people. So morning hours of practice, let's say you take at least half an hour of your time. The first thing should be self-nurturing, self-growth. That's important thing. You get your own grounding. You have a little heightened awareness at a time. So the secret is how to sustain that awareness throughout the day, at least to some degree, so that you're not quite bumped by everything that comes your way in your day. That needs, of course, some training and it needs some guidance. I know that the day will bring things I don't like to hear. I don't want to deal with. Humanly, right? It's like there will be issues. There will be an issue of coordination of different activities. But the first practice that you really want to master, regardless of everything, is to have a certain degree of equanimity. This is like your primary goal. Like whatever happens in a day, you try not to get thrown out of the balance. And that in itself is a spiritual practice. But then the things in the morning that we do, they they kind of foster that. So my practice in the morning consists of several things. One, I do pranayama, I meditate. And 
I find that if for some reason I have to travel, I don't even have time to meditate. I find that that day is kind of out of kilt a little bit. It's a strange feeling. I'm not quite aligned and it's very subtle. And so I always say, no, no, you should meditate, even if it's just a few minutes, right? And then throughout the day, this is another suggestion. Throughout the day, you must stop at least every two, three hours. I know this is going to be very challenging because people say, well, I'm just busy now. I want to do this. Just close your eyes and realign yourself with your breath, the techniques that you teach, right? It's so essential. And even sometimes to ask yourself, just break the flow. You say, what am I thinking about right now? Oh, and then you say, oh yeah, I was worried about this. You want to just break that. So this way you intercept your kind of mechanical thinking, which I call it, and you, you know, mechanical feeling or going back into some kind of hurts and stuff like this. And then with these practices, you need to be extremely consistent. And the goal could be equanimity, or you can use another word, if you like, which kind of does the same job. It's the harmony. So stay in harmony. Am I harmonized with my feelings or whatever I'm doing and all that? So then you get that strengthening the first thing in the morning. I also do a lot of mantra work. And then I do some asanas and I do some qigong. I do also one practice like that. And this is like my primary thing. Varies, the timing varies depending on what I'm doing in the morning. But if, you, if you're healthy, if you're strong, if you can get up earlier than anyone in the house, even before your dog and a cat, that is the key. <laughs> That yes. is the key to your progress. Yes, because you taught me that 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. is the most auspicious time for your tapas, for your morning routine. Yeah. And I, I wake up at 4.30 because that feels so good to me. I go to bed at 8.30, so I'm definitely still getting my sleep. But for me, I just feel like in the morning when it's quiet, it just feels like there's a reverence at that yes. time of day. It's it's like walking into church, walking into a place <laughs> of worship, right? And you can create the rituals for yourself. I love that you shared everything that you do. And I think for everyone that I work with, I always say, find the things that most light you up. Find the things, like you said, that bring you the harmony, the peace. And I love the words you use today, mercy, equanimity, mm-hmm. harmony, all of these things are so important. And we rarely talk about those virtues anymore, right? Like even hearing the words, I was like, yes, I want to be in harmony. I don't normally say that. I would love to see somebody doing a PhD in kindness or mercy oh. or something like that. Yes. <laughs> That's what we need, honestly. We have to start, of course, from ourselves. And I think the moment we make some progress, even in our habits of how we speak and how we address other people, we're going to see some transformation taking place in the perception of the world that we live in, at least. I agree. And I'm encouraged when I see schools that are bringing meditation and yoga with the young kids, because I would love to follow them and see those that continued on what happened. Wouldn't that be interesting just to see if there's any studies that show if there's less anxiety or stress, or if they if you can measure kindness and compassion or what they do in life, that would be kind of fascinating to follow those kids around. Totally. I mean, when I was in Louisville just a few weeks ago, we had like a private retreat and there was some people that were really amazing. They were teaching like mindfulness and they introduced them in the schools 
and in the environment and they already have found that the kids are like responding incredibly in fact it is so much easier to kids to even concentrate that we think of a certain age of course and that they like all want to learn more so we do see that there are people who are really involved with that work with more and more and i think at one point there would be just i would say a necessity really to take it wide and across the world to introduce these meditations and yoga nidras relaxations whatever it is that people need absolutely because it's free i mean once you learn these concepts these are not things you have to pay for there are apps for everything there are services teachers which of course i appreciate and i'm one but once you learn these concepts, you can bring it back into your home. You can teach your family, you can teach others and, mm. and be sort of a student of it and a teacher at the same time. I totally agree. But I have one more advice on that. And that is that people should learn if Annette could teach them some <laughs> form of a, of a journaling. Yeah. I think when you journal, when you make a journal, which is not just the description of what you think about certain things, which is also useful, but it's actually something that uh, places uh, the way you put in the information about how much of something you really did today. It would be a great eye opener. It would be a great uh, help in your spiritual practice. If you actually are able to monitor and measure whatever degree you can, the practices, the things that you're applying in a daily life. I think if you just leave it to inspiration, we're not inspired 24 hours a day. That's very difficult to find. Yeah. But if you practice, you will find that your periods of staying inspired and motivated will last longer. And the best way to do it is to really share with your spiritual mentor or life coach to share this information, your growth. In the same way as you do it with your doctors, you share your information. I think that's a key thing to some self-development because we do not always have a teacher next to us. We don't have it available certainly every day. So it would be useful to sit down and do a little vision board, put your practices, what exactly you want to see those changes, talk to Annette. She will tell you exactly which way to start, depending on your time, availability, and inspiration, truly. I love that. Prem, <laughs> I have a final question for you. Although, so my question is tied to the title of this podcast, which is to live the width of your life. And my question to you is, what does it mean to you to live the width of your life? Very beautiful question. To live the width of your life means to think of your life as in terms of a potential that you carry. If we could remember how much of potential we have, how much we carry it, we would not waste our moments on smaller issues and maybe smaller failures and everything. So to live the width of one's life doesn't mean that you have to be always on high, right? It just means that you're like a good captain of a ship, that how to navigate yourself when the waters are calm and the waters are rough, like in, in the ocean. And for that, I can only think either you live every possible moment dedicated in your life as possible dedicated to your practices of love and kindness and mercy or you can call it living in mindfulness although yeah. knowing the presence like that i feel like we need to think of ourselves not to think only about ourselves but to think of our life as Shivananda says happiness is 
the result of happiness given to others. So if you live that connected life with others, then you will find your own fulfillment. But the truth is that the spiritual life is about connections. And in the, those connections, you will find at the end of the road, you will find oneness. So there's three relationships you have to cultivate in your life for that with. This yoga scriptures tell us about the relationship with oneself that you cultivate to the practices of setting up ideals, doing certain practices, learning to discipline yourself. And then you have a relationship with others. That's obviously what many people concentrate on. And we want to make those relationships more noble, more appreciative and all that. And then we also have a relationship with the whole creation. That relationship is not exactly taught anywhere, but in some maybe more spiritual sense in traditions. So we need to cultivate all these three relationships to live a full life. So the width is there. It's for everybody to walk all of it. But how much of it we take is really limited just simply by the quality of our thoughts, I think. And that is the beginning of the book that you wrote. I remember the very first line of your book, I think to paraphrase you is something like the quality of your life is in a direct reflection of the limit of your thoughts, something like that. And I love yeah. it. And I love that you ended with that because it's so, so good. Prem, Thank you. I am so grateful for you. Thank all you that so much. That you came on today and shared your wisdom, shared your experience, shared your love with others. And I hope that people enjoy it. How can we best support you? How can people find you if they need more of Prem in their life? Oh, that's a good one. The easiest way to come in contact with me is I have a website, Prem. Uh, hyphen sadashivananda.com and I also can be reached by email I can leave it with you yes I'll you know. put it in the show notes absolutely yeah I do teach some kind of webinars every week which are either based on psychology or some philosophy of yoga or meditation or something like that. There's plenty of interesting talks that I think they're sometimes thought-provoking for our time that are necessary. And I tend to share them weekly. So if anybody wants to study anything, you're welcome to contact me. And I've attended your classes. They're amazing. Thank you so much. Annette, I want to tell you, thank you so much for bringing me into your podcast. I feel very honored by your invitation and a little bit shy to say, oh my God, <laughs> I've got so much recognition today, but I really am amazed by the work you do and by bringing all these different people and different thoughts. It's important that we all stay, I would say, inspired. It's very difficult to stay inspired, I have to say that. So this is the best way to do it. It's a form of a satsang, right? A company of spiritually minded people. And we inspire each other with our ideas and our practices. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Namaste. Thank you so much. Namaste. We'll see you again very soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you have lost your zest for life, and wondering if there is more to life than this, I want you to know that there is. If you are tired of being burned out and overworked, I was there and now I want to help you. Download my free easy to implement daily routines checklist to empower you to take control of your personal health and well-being and start to feel good again. Head out to my website for your copy.